Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. What we're going to do in this segment of our History of Zionism and History of Israel is to begin to look at what's happening in Palestine in the years between the Balfour Declaration and the creation of the Jewish state, between the Balfour Declaration in November of 1917 and the creation of the Jewish state in May 1948. There's a lot that we could look at. A tremendous amount happens, but I want to begin to look at at least three issues today. First of all, immigration. How did the Jews come to Palestine? When did the Jews come to Palestine? How many Jews came to Palestine? The second thing that we want to look at is violence, which is this is the period in which the violent conflict between Jews and Arabs is going to begin. And it is going to begin in large measure because of the increased immigration of Jews to the area. The local Arabs were very upset about it, but of course they couldn't stop it because A, they didn't control the borders, and B, landowners who didn't live in Palestine were more than happy to sell Jews their land. So the Palestinians, who are the, as they're called now, are kind of caught between the Jews and the landowners and the British. We'll talk about that. Then the last issue that I want to raise now is the British suggestion in 1937 of moving populations in order to create two different communities. And I want to mention it, not because it's a good idea, but just to make it clear that when that idea comes up much later on the sides of all different sorts of people, uh, it's an idea that the British themselves actually are the ones who introduce into Palestine. But first, let's talk about immigration and the place to which all these people are immigrating. They are immigrating to what's called the Yeshuv. And this is an important word that we'll use a lot. Yeshuv comes from the Hebrew word Yashav, which is to sit or dwell. So the Yeshuv means the area of dwelling, the places where the Jews were. It's the Jewish community in Palestine before the state. If you, instead of saying pre-state Jewish community in Palestine, you just say Yeshuv. So when did the Jews start to come to the Yeshuv? When does it all begin? It really begins actually even before Herzl. There's what's called the first Aliyah. Each of these waves of Jewish immigration is called an Aliyah. Aliyah in Hebrew means to go up. So if you move to Israel, it's called making Aliyah. You're going up to the land of Israel, not topographically, but kind of spiritually, it's said. Or if you get called up to the Torah, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be up to the Torah, but it's called getting an Aliyah because you're going up. So these waves of immigration are called, each one is called an Aliyah, and in plural, they're called Aliyot. The first Aliyah is a relatively small Aliyah of about 35,000 Jews. It takes place between 1882 and 1903, so it happens already during Herzl's lifetime, because Herzl dies in 1904. Uh, these are kind of really spiritual pioneer types. They were called Chibatzion or Chavavetzion, lovers of Zion. They came from Russia um, after the pogroms and so on and so forth. They are young people. They're relatively agriculturally inexperienced. They're stronger on romanticism than they are on practicality. Uh, they don't make much of a dent in the actual reality of life in Palestine, but because they're the first Aliyah and they were such romantics and poets and 
so forth, they've become kind of a very important image uh, in Zionist history and in Israeli history. After them comes, of course, the second Aliyah, which begins in 1904 and will continue until about 1914. And in that period, it's about another similar number, not 35,000, but 40,000 Jews this time, mostly coming from Russia as a result of the outbreaks of anti-Semitism in that country. Don't forget that the Kishinev program that we spoke about earlier is in 1903. So beginning in 1904 and lasting for about a decade, these 40,000 Jews begin to make their way from Russia to Palestine. And these are a very different kind of immigrant than the previous ones. These are doers. These are the people who found the first kibbutz, the Ganya, in 1909. These are the people that go to the sand north of Jaffa and start another area called Ahuzat Bayit, which is supposed to be a Jaffa suburb, which actually becomes a city uh, called Tel Aviv, which they start by drawing lines in the sand, literally, in 1906. Uh, these are the people that'll try to bring Hebrew as a spoken language back to life. They're going to be the ones who start the newspapers and the literary presses. They're going to begin actually beginning political parties and workers' organizations. This is the beginning of where the pre-state apparatus of a free press and political parties, workers' organizations, Hebrew as the spoken language, and all of that is really going to begin to come to fore. And it's important for us to note, again, that this tradition of free press, of multiple political parties, of no central control, of all of these parties having real elections for leadership and so forth, that all predates the state by some 20, 30 years. And of course, it's unfortunate and it's unpleasant to point out, but it's important to note that that democratic tradition has, of course, not been copied anywhere in any of the Arab states surrounding Israel, which is one of the reasons that Israelis are so concerned. Uh, but just to give you an idea, we're in 2020. Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian Authority, uh, was elected in January 2005 for a term of four years to what was supposed to be January 2009. So he is now in the 15th year of a four-year term. Uh, and again, that doesn't get a tremendous amount of discussion, whereas we take it for granted, of course, that the Yeshuv and then the state uh, would become a completely democratic, democratically functioning entity. And that's going to become, of course, much more important when we get much later to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The third, third Aliyah is going to follow around 1919 to 1923. It's much shorter. It's about four years. And it's, again, about 40,000 Jews, mostly from Eastern Europe. And um, they are going to be the ones who are going to be called the Chalutzim. These are going to be sort of the pioneers, the ones that you're going to read about building sustainable economies, the ones who are going to drain the swamps in the Galilee. Uh, and over the course of time, as a result of this Aliyah, plus the ones that had preceded, minus those who had left, because some did leave, uh, by 1923 uh, or so, which is around the end of, right, around the, end of, the, of uh, the war, shortly after the end of the war, actually, there's about 90,000 Jews living in the Yeshuv. Among the other things that they do is they built the Histadrut, which is the labor union uh, of Israel, which is still a very, very powerful organization. Israel is by no means the socialist country that it once was, uh, but the labor union here is still exceedingly powerful, and they built that really almost 100 years ago. And they will begin to defend themselves against Arab violence, which we'll talk about in a little while, and they will build a self-defense organization called the Haganah, or the Defense and that is going to be the forerunner of the forerunner of the Israel Defense Forces. Uh, the fourth Aliyah is from 1924 to 1929. This is only a five-year period, but 82,000 Jews arrived during this period. So you can see that the pace is picking up dramatically. And again, here, of course, there's two things that are causing it. And this is really worth thinking about. 
One of the reasons that so many Jews are coming is because of increased anti-Semitism uh, in, in Europe, and that had been going on for quite a while. But in 1921, the United States actually begins to seal its borders. Many of us who were born Jewish and who live in the United States can trace our ancestors in America back to the period between 1880 and 1920. That's when the overwhelming majority, millions and millions of Eastern European Jews came to America. Only a trickle went to Palestine. The vast majority of Jews, and millions of them, fled Eastern Europe. The vast majority of them came to America and were the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents of many of the people that we all know. Um, so why does that switch and begin to move more from America to Palestine? Because in 1921, the United States enacts what's called the Emergency Quota Act, which basically almost completely shuts the door on immigration. So now the Jews are fleeing Europe, but they have nowhere else to go but Palestine, which is why the numbers go up. And the United States is going to enact another anti-immigration act in 1924 called the Johnson-Reed Act, which is going to exclude all kinds of people, Jews among them. And it's therefore at this period, the first time, that more Jews leaving Europe go to Palestine than go to America. More Jews leave Europe and go to Palestine rather than going to America because America shuts its doors. So here's a little bit of irony, and it's really worth thinking about. You can't create a state out of 90,000 people, right? It's just nowhere near the number of people that you need to begin to create a state, which is what the population was in 1923 before the fourth Aliyah. If the United States had not shut its borders, leading numerous tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees from around the world to go to Palestine, we might not be having this conversation. There very well might not be actually a Jewish state. In large measure, the Jewish state exists because there were enough Jews in Palestine to create a state, which was only the fact because the United States closed its borders, which is a kind of a very, very ironic but important way to think about this. Now, Hitler, of course, is going to come to power at the end of the 1930s, but the drum roll is very clear even earlier. Hitler writes Mein Kampf in the early 1920s. It's pretty clear very early on which way Europe is heading. Um, and the fifth Aliyah between 1929 and 1939, which is going to see the beginning of the rise of Nazism in Germany, even though they don't actually take power at that point, there are going to be 250,000 more immigrants. And of those, 175,000 basically arrive in the very short period of 1933 to 1936. So there's a combination of America shutting its doors and the rise of Nazism. So now the flow of Jews out of Europe becomes a huge flow, but now they're not going only to America. They're actually not going to America basically at all. Uh, they're coming to Palestine. For reasons that we're going to discuss, uh, this is a really hugely important Aliyah, this fifth Aliyah. These are the doctors and the lawyers and the professors and the architects and the musicians. This is the time when the Palestinian Philharmonic Orchestra was created. And it's during this time by 1940 that there's going to be 450,000 Jews uh, in Palestine. Again, all the lands that they are going to dwell on are lands that are going to be purchased with the help of philanthropists and the Jewish National Fund. Uh, but the Jewish presence in Palestine is becoming enormous. At a certain point, the British are going to shut off immigration. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And then there's going to be what's called illegal immigration between 1933 and 1948, where the Jews already in Palestine help Jews who are on boats. And you can find this very easily on the internet and see really moving photographs of people with ropes pulling the boats in and then helping people jumping off of the boats and coming, into the, coming onto the shore and trying to evade the British sentries. There were lots of British soldiers in Palestine, of course. Um, that illegal Aliyah is called Aliyah Bet. 
and that's going to take place between 33 and 48. So those are the basic um, elements of Aliyah. There's 450 Jews in Palestine by 1940, and by 1948, when Israel is created, it'll be something like 600,000 to 650,000. Now, I've mentioned to you that the local Arabs were very unhappy about what was originally a trickle, um, and then became a bigger flow, and then finally became a huge rush of waters. And in fairness to the local Palestinians, there's really not very much that they can do, uh, because they don't control the borders of Palestine. The British control the borders of Palestine. They don't control who gets in. The British control that. They can't control why the Jews are leaving Europe, because that's being done by European anti-Semites. Uh, and they really have no power. Don't forget, this is a kind of a backwater. It's not anywhere near as developed as it is today. They had no way of making their voice heard, and they are highly disorganized. There's a kind of a murmuring in the masses, but there aren't any of the organizations that we now take for granted as being part of the Palestinian picture. And the Palestinians resort to violence. There is no historian in the world, whether it's Khalidi, who's in a Palestinian authority, historian today teaching at Columbia, or whether it's Jewish historians, uh, there are no historians in the world who will deny uh, that the beginning of the conflict is around, May, uh, around July of 1929 in the city of Hebron, Hebron, as it's called in English, when there all of a sudden spreads a rumor. It's completely false, and this happened several times. There spreads a rumor that the Jews are going to try to take over the Temple Mount. There was nothing to it. It was never going to happen, but the rumor spread. Uh, and in a fit of rage that the Jews were going to take over the Temple Mount, uh, Palestinians, Arabs, whatever you want to call them back then, and that nomenclature is very controversial to this very day, attack the Jewish community in Hebron, um, and they kill either 67 or 69 Jews, depending on the account, over basically one weekend. Some Jews, by the way, it's very important to note, are actually saved by local Arab families. They're hidden by local Arab families. Um, and it's not clear exactly how many of them there were, and that's debated by historians. But in the space of one Shabbat and the day after, one weekend, the Jewish community of Hebron, which had existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, was wiped out. The Jews who were left there were taken out by the British. Uh, some then returned, but they were removed by the British again. And I, I mention all of that because there is now a Jewish community in Hebron. And it is one of the most ideologically staunch right-wing, some people would say reactionary, but that depends on who you ask. Uh, they are among the most right-wing and staunch Jewish people out there. Um, their attitude to history, though, is born out of what happened in Hebron in 1929, 91 years ago. Their argument is there always were Jews in Hebron. They were just massacred, and then the rest of them were taken out of Hebron by the British. We're not doing anything. You can call it a settlement all you want, but we're really just establishing or re-establishing what always existed. Again, I'm not taking a stand right now on the Jews of Hebron or not. We'll come back to that much later. It's much more complicated than they say that it is. But nonetheless, one does need to understand um, their perspective. A number of years after the revolt in Hebron of July 1929, there's what's called the Major Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939, or 36 and 37 are the major years. Uh, it's a year where the, the Palestinians, the local Arabs, do begin to get a little bit more organized. Uh, they have a general strike. There's a, what's called a Palestine Day, Palestine Day, which is called by the leader of the local uh, religious authority there, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, in 1936. And I mention Hajj Amin al-Husseini because he's an important figure. He is the leader of the local Arabs at that time, and also 
an avid supporter of Hitler and Nazism. And he will eventually make his way to Europe to meet with Hitler. And he will encourage Hitler to destroy the Jews, not only in Europe, but to wipe out the Jews in the Middle East as well. So the rise of Palestinian organization, the rise of Arab organization, tragically and sadly for them and for the Jews in that area, is very much tied up with the ideology of Nazism, which doesn't take you um, any place good. And now, of course, you need to understand the psychology of the Jews who are both coming to Palestine and are also living there. They are fleeing a burning house. You can't stay in Europe anymore. The Nazis are making their way across Europe, and it's going to get much worse, of course, before it gets better. But they can't go to America. There's really almost nowhere that they can go. A few will get us to Australia. A few will get to South America. But those are very, very, very far away, and most people are not going to be able to get there. Where do they want to go? They want to go to Palestine. And the ones who are in Palestine say, we can't go back to Europe because that's in flames. And the Palestine to which we fled is now itself in flames. In Europe, we were pursued by European Christian anti-Semites. Um, and in Palestine, we're being pursued uh, by the local population, most of which is Muslim. And again, without getting into right or wrong or who started what or any of that, it's just very important to understand the psychology of the local Arabs. And it's really important to understand the psychology of the local Jews. One of the things that the Jews are going to do, of course, is to begin to build a defense organization. The Haganah, which I mentioned earlier, is the first one. Other defense organizations are going to get built, and they're going to have different attitudes. Some of them are going to engage only in defensive operations. Some of them are actually going to try to preempt. When they hear that the, the local Arabs are going to attack, they will preempt the attack and attack them. Eventually, we'll talk about this later, not today, uh, there will be other groups uh, that will actually attack British soldiers for different kinds of reasons. But the level of violence in Palestine is quickly getting out of hand. And 20 years after the British got there, in 1937, which is 20 years after 1917, the British understand this violence can't be controlled. They understand that the Jews and the Arabs are never going to be able to live together. Uh, they say this a very, very, very long time ago. And they put together a commission that's called the Peel Commission, and the Peel Commission comes back with a recommendation and a map. And it promotes an idea which sounds very novel, but goes back to 1937, two states. Two states or two communities, whatever you want to call it, for two different peoples. One for the Jews and one for the Arabs. They allocate 20% of the land to the Jews and 80% or 75%, because not all of it was allocated at all, 70-75% of the land they allocate to the Arabs. They also advocated something which never happened, but we should just mention, they advocated transferring populations, taking the Jews out of the Arab areas and moving the Arabs out of the Jewish areas, they said, because the Jews and the Arabs will never be able to live side by side. So we're going to actually forcibly transfer populations to create almost exclusively Jewish communities, almost exclusively Arab communities, and then hopefully we'll be able to get these two communities to live side by side. The Jews, as I said, had gotten 20% of the land, and they were enraged. The Palestinians had gotten 75% of the land, and they were enraged. The Jews actually decided, after a lot of voting and discussion, to say yes. They accepted the plan of the Peel Commission, and the local Arabs rejected the plan of the Peel Commission. And I just want to, again, point that out, because that is tragically going to become also a repeating pattern that we're going to see. 
in November 20, in November 1947, we're going to see this, uh, the United Nations is going to vote to create two states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state or an Arab state. The Jews are going to say yes, the Palestinians are going to say no. In January 49, at the end of Israel's declaration of war of independence, uh, Israel is going to sign armistices, and we'll come back to all of this, with all of the neighboring countries, but not a single one of them will sign a peace treaty because they all say, we're going to be back. We are not accepting this as a long-term reality. We're going to destroy what's now called the Jewish state. In June 1967, when Israel's going to win the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, and triple its size in three days, uh, the Arabs are going to go to Khartoum. We'll come back to this also. And they're going to issue the famous Khartoum Declaration. No peace, no recognition, no negotiations. In July of 2000, Ehud Barak and Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat are going to go to Camp David. And... Arafat is going to be receiving some sort of an offer from Ehud Barak, the Israeli Prime Minister. He's going to say no, and the Second Intifada is going to be unleashed. In September 2008, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and now Mahmoud Abbas, who's the President of the Palestinian Authority, Olmert is going to make a specific priest proposal to Abbas, which Abbas later admitted, you can Google it, it's all over, he admitted, he never even bothered responding to it. Which is not to suggest in any way that all of the blame or all of the responsibility lies on one side or the other. It doesn't. Both sides are very responsible for all sorts of things. But I do think that in 2020, 2021, when we have conversations about Israel, when we have conversations about Palestine, when we have conversations about peace, uh, what we don't often have conversations about is the fact that proposals to divide the land were made in 37, 47, 49, 67, 2000, and 2008 and more, but those are the main ones. And in all of those instances, the proposals were rebuffed. That doesn't mean that future proposals shouldn't be made. It doesn't mean that the situation of local Palestinians in the West Bank or in Gaza is good. It's not, it's terrible. But it does mean that to have a serious conversation about how we ended up where we are today, it's critically important uh, that we know the history. What begins to happen later on in the British Mandate, what starts to happen after the Peel Commission of 1937, is what we're going to pick up in our next segment. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordas and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.